Welcome back to week two of our sermon series called Rebuilding with God, as together as a church we are studying the book of Nehemiah. And if you're new today and you you say, you know what, I've never heard of Nehemiah in my life, that's okay, because Nehemiah isn't the most popular book of the Bible. But at the heart of the message, Nehemiah is about a leader, a leader who's going on a uh, building project uh, for God. And as Holy Trinity is going on a building project this summer, uh, we, we understand that there are lessons that we can learn from his story. And the very last verse that we read last week uh, said this. Nehemiah said, I was a cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah was a cupbearer, which shows that he worked really hard and he got himself a good job. Even though God's people were living in a terrible time in life, they were living in exile, There were still some of God's people who were able to rise to the top and to serve the king. Let me tell you a little bit about what really was going on as a cupbearer. Here's a job description of a cupbearer. Well, first, you hook the king up with good wine. That's job number one. You're a cupbearer. Your job is supply the king with good wine. And second, you don't let him get poisoned. Because back then, uh, you know, if you're a king and you had, didn't have friends, they might try and poison you. So the cupbearer's job was to test the wine before the king drank it. And doesn't that sound like the best, easiest job there is? Or maybe like 99% of the time it's the best job there is. Maybe 1% of the time it's not that fun of a job. But that's Nehemiah's life. He would sit with the king. He would hook him up with good wine, make sure he didn't get poisoned. And... He would talk politics. He would talk politics with the king because that's what the king talked about. So he kind of had an advisory position. Um, So it was a little bit above uh, a security guard. You would actually be able to talk with the king, a little lower than vice president. Some were kind of in there. Either way, he lived that he had this notable position as a cupbearer and would be able to talk to the king. And even though um, Nehemiah had this good job, he was able to live in a palace, you know, live like this MTV Cribs type of lifestyle, supporting the king, drinking good wine. Um, He didn't use his position for his own glory. As we see in the story, he's going to use his position to help God's people. And that leads to point number one today. If you're taking notes, it's on the back page of your bulletin If you're with your pens for the fill in the blanks. Uh, Point number one. Your position is given to you for God's glory, not your comfort. Your position is given to you for God's glory, not your comfort. God has a way of putting people in positions in their life where he wants them to be, where he needs them to be. And so many of us, we have different types of jobs, we have different types of lifestyles, different connections, different influence in this world. Whatever job you have, whatever connections, influence you have, I need you to know that God didn't give that to you so you can make a name for yourself. Instead, he gave you that position so that you can advance his kingdom, so that you can do whatever you can for his glory. And that reminds me of the story of William Wilberforce. Does it remind you of that story too, the great story of William Wilberforce? Uh, let, let me tell you about William. Uh, so William was an Englishman. And he was born into a non-religious household, meaning he didn't really have a good understanding about God growing up. And he worked really hard, and he became a lawyer. And he was really good at it. He got to go to Parliament. He met the King of England. He met Marie Antoinette. He met Benjamin Franklin and was just a very influential lawyer. 
And that all changed on one Easter Sunday. In a random turn of events, uh, William found himself on church on Easter, and he heard the gospel message for the first time, and it worked in his heart, and he became a Christian. And after this, he ran into another man, a man who used to be a ship captain on slave ships. His name was John Newton, better known as the man who wrote the song Amazing Grace. The song Amazing Grace was written by a slave ship captain, but after his heart was changed by hearing the gospel message, he gave up his uh, position of being a slave ship captain, and he met William Wilberforce and told him to do the same. He said, you're put in this position in life, use it for God's glory. So for the next 18 years, William Wilberforce went to Parliament and fought to abolish slavery and to end the slave trade. And eventually, he was successful. God has a way of putting people in the spot right where they need to advance his kingdom for God's glory. And the same is true for Nehemiah. In the month of Nisan, that's March, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So this is about four months after the story that we read last week, the story about how Nehemiah heard that Jerusalem's walls were broken and it broke his heart. Now Nehemiah had been waiting and planning for just the right moment uh, to talk to the king about this problem. And he did it uh, when the wine was brought for him. He was waiting for just the right moment. And I know you guys do this too. Maybe kids out there, have you ever, um, like maybe you wanted to have a sleepover, so you waited till like your dad was in a good mood before you asked him? Or guys out there, have you ever like waited for the right moment to tell your wife that you bought that new bass fishing boat? Just, you know, wait till she's in a good mood. Or maybe the women out there, you, you wait to show off that new outfit until you know your husband's in a good mood. And then you walk out, he's like, wow, that's a nice new outfit. Is that new? Like, yeah, new. Been sitting in my closet for a month. But yeah, it's new. Um, you know, waiting for the right moment to reveal something like that. Um, that's what Nehemiah's doing. It's been four months since he heard about this issue. But he's been waiting for the right moment to bring this up to the king. And he waits for a moment where he brings the wine to him. Uh, it sounds like there's a party going on. And he knows that the king is in good spirits before he gives him this request. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are, when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So Nehemiah was always a happy cupbearer and he did a good job. But the king noticed that he didn't look so good anymore. I love the way how the literal Hebrew says it. When you translate it literally, it says, Why does your face look so bad? So, well, Why does your face look bad? I don't recommend you saying that to anyone. Um, but that's what he said to Nehemiah. Why does your face look so bad? Why are you sad? Um, and so Nehemiah said, Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So Nehemiah says, how could I not be sad? How could I not be upset? When the city where my ancestors are from, Jerusalem, is lying in ruins without any walls, broken down and burned. How could I not be sad about this? So the king said to me, what is it you want? What do you want, Nehemiah? What do you want from me? Isn't that ridiculous? The king is basically handing Nehemiah a blank check. And can you feel the lump in Nehemiah's throat? 
Because you know what it's like to ask a king. You, you've heard of the stories back then that if you ask the king something ridiculous, you know what that means? Off with your head. So if Nehemiah makes this big request to the king and the king doesn't like it, he's putting his life on the line. He could easily be killed right there in the throne room. And this made Nehemiah scared. But then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. Before he made his request, before he put it all out there, asking the king to go on this uh, trip to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he says a quick prayer. And that leads to point number two. Persistent prayer is important. Persistent prayer is important. Uh, we see that in the lives of Christians, that we pray because that's, that's how we show our relationship with God. When we pray to God, we recognize that we are not in control of this world, but we are praying to somebody who knows more than we do as in, and is in control than we, more than we are. And it shows our dependence. It shows our dependence on God and asking him for our strength. And we see that in the life of Nehemiah. In chapter 1 of Nehemiah, there's this long prayer recorded. But right here, we see something short. How long of a prayer do you think that was? It was probably a couple words. God help me. God give me strength. But we see that persistent prayer is important for the life of the Christian. And that reminds me of a verse from 1 Thessalonians. It's one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Two words long. And it's pray continually. Pray continually. And if you look at the original Greek, that word continually is used um, often with uh, one type of thing. Do you know what it's often used for, that word continually? <coughs> oh man, should I brought my water up here. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. Um, that word continually is often used to describe a cough, a persistent cough that you have. Uh, have you ever had a persistent cough before? Oh, I tricked you. I, 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 I'm feeling good. Uh, <laughs> So, um, yeah, so pray continually. That word continually is used to describe a persistent cough. Have you ever had a cough like that before? Where, you know, every five minutes it just keeps coming back. Where, uh, you know, you, you thought it's away, you, you thought you got it away, but then it just keeps coming back. It keeps you up in the middle of the night. And that picture of a persistent cough describes our prayer lives. How we might not always be praying for long amounts of time, we might not always have big, long, lengthy prayers, but it might just be a few words. You might be sitting in your car and say, God, give me strength. You might be walking into work and you might say, God, give me strength. Persistent prayer is important. We see that in the life of Nehemiah. So he lays out his request. He says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. So he puts it out there. He says, send me to Jerusalem. Let me go on this extended sabbatical, this extended vacation, and let me go back to Jerusalem. And then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. So, he's successful. The king says yes. He says, what time do you need? How long do you need to be gone? I'm letting you go on this trip. And I need to confess something to you. Because when I was planning the sermon series, I kind of forgot about Mother's Day. 
Um, sorry. Uh, but while I was studying this lesson in the Bible, uh, something came out to me, and I, I got a connection to you for Mother's Day. So you ready for it? And it comes from this word, queen. So the king granted the request with the queen sitting next to him. And what's interesting about that word, queen, is that it's not your normal word for queen. So most Bible translators think that it might actually be translated better something like mother queen or older queen or something like that, like a matriarchal position. And so it might not be actually the king's wife, but maybe like the mother queen. And if you scratch your head for a minute and go, hmm, I wonder who that mother queen was. Do you know who most people think it was? Queen Esther. From the book of the Bible, Esther. The story about this young Jewish girl who puts everything on the, on the line and marries the king and has, uses her power uh, to influence him so that he could save God's Jewish people. So now you have Nehemiah, and he's in the throne room with the king. And he makes this big request to help out the Jews. Why would a king ever listen to him? Why would a king listen to his servant and let him go on this trip? Well, don't you think it would make sense if Queen Esther and her story was still around, and she looks over at the king and goes, yeah, you better say yes to that, that the king will listen to that. Uh, so here's my connection to Mother's Day. As women, as you put in the hard work of raising children, influencing them, having them make God-pleasing decisions, have them grow in that connection, um, yes, that helps you out immediately. It's great to be able to see that in the lives of your children. But you have no idea how much your influence also affects the next generation. And how powerful is that? The good decisions that you make now don't only just affect your family now, but it also affects the next generations, as we see in the life of Queen Esther. So, happy Mother's Day. There it is. Nehemiah went on to say, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct? And may I have a letter to Asaph so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel and for the city wall? So Nehemiah goes on then to ask um, basically for a travel visa, this letters from the governors of the trans-Euphrates, meaning that Nehemiah can travel without people killing him, travel visa. And then he also asks for the king's supplies, and he gets timber also so he can make these walls as well. Just showing what a big request this is. Hey, can I go on a vacation? Also, can I have your stuff and have a visa? And the king says yes. Um, and isn't that amazing? Because sometimes throughout the Bible, we see God's hands at work through miracles. We see a servant Moses raise his hands over the Red Sea, and in a form of a miracle, God saves his people by crossing the Red Sea. Sometimes God talks to his people through a burning bush. Sometimes he uses a pillar of cloud to guide his people. But other times, he works in the heart of a king. He works through people, and he works behind the scenes. Because we clearly see God's hand at work by this king granting Nehemiah's request to go on a trip. And that reminds me of Grace Hmong Outreach in Vietnam. Have you heard the story in our synod recently? So apparently in 2011, there was a small Hmong church in Vietnam that started streaming some sermons from the United States of a Hmong pastor who's now in Kansas City. And they heard the message of the law and gospel in their own language, and that message changed their lives. And they began to spread that message throughout other small churches in Vietnam. And you know who noticed? The government in Vietnam. 
And they weren't upset because these Christians were the best citizens in their country. So you know what the government did? They asked our small Wisconsin Synod to build a seminary in their capital city of Hanoi. Isn't that ridiculous? You have government leaders who don't believe in Jesus asking our synod to build a seminary in their communist capital city because of that. that's the work of God. That has to be the work of God, right? To see that played out about how the gospel can spread in other countries, God is clearly working through people where he puts them. He did that in the life of Nehemiah. He did that in the life of William Wilberforce. And he's still doing it today, as we see um, in Vietnam. And Nehemiah mentioned this by saying, Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So Nehemiah knew. Nehemiah knew that this was God's hand at work. He got a favorable request from the king, and he didn't say, Yeah, I got it because, you know, I'm very articulate, good at asking questions. He didn't say, I was the best cupbearer around, that's why this happened. No. He gives all credit to God. And what a lesson for us. Whenever we experience success in our life, don't pump yourself up. Don't say, yeah, it's because I worked real hard. Give God the credit. Give God the credit for what he has done and the ways that he is working in our lives. And that leads to our third point. True success comes from God. True success comes from God. Any type of success that you experience in this world, it comes from God. And I need you to understand that I'm not saying that because you're a Christian, you're going to have all the successes in the world. Because God's definition of success and your definition of success might not line up the same way. But I need you to understand also that any type of success, any good thing that you have in this life, it comes from God. True success comes from God. We see that in Nehemiah. He gives credit to God saying, the only reason why the king granted my request is because of God's gracious hand was on me. And later we're going to see him go and check out the walls. And the people ask him about it and hey, why are we doing this? And he says, because God is going to give us success. And it's also true for our lives as well. And it is certainly true for our salvation. Because by ourselves, we could never save ourselves. And when you look at the story of Nehemiah, about a man who builds walls, and we look at a story about a man who was in such a great position in life, such a lofty position, and gave up everything so that he could save God's people. Doesn't that remind you of another story? Doesn't that remind you of a story of a man who was in the loftiest position there ever was, who gave up everything to save God's people? Well, that's the story of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who was exalted in heaven, who sat at the right hand of God, he left heaven so he could come to this world to save God's people. And on the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished, paying for all of our sins. And you know what he was doing? He was making a request to the king, the king who created the universe, to take away the sins of the whole world. And God the Father looked favorably on Jesus as he did that so that he could remove all of our sins. All of our sins of pride and taking credit for the things that we shouldn't take credit for. All the times where we failed to pray. Jesus has removed all of our sins on the cross because when he was on the cross, he died so that we could be successful in God's eyes. 
We are no longer failures in God's eyes. Even though we've done things wrong, God doesn't see you as a failure. Instead, he sees success. He sees success in you, not because of the things that you've done wrong, but only because of what Jesus has done for us. We understand that true success comes from God. True success comes from Jesus. He gives us that success that one day we know we'll get to walk into God's throne room in heaven forever. A couple weeks ago, we had a groundbreaking ceremony for our building project. And we read this verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And isn't that the theme of our building project? Because as a church, we've done some great things together. We've put together these plans. We've gathered the money. We did great things and came up with great plans so that we can share the gospel message even better. But we understand that unless the Lord builds this building project, unless the Lord builds this school, builds this child care, the builders labor in vain. Because without God's help, we can do nothing. But with God's help, with his purposes, he, we know that he will carry out his mission, whatever that mission may be. So we need to know that true success comes from God. Let us be those people. Let's hold God to his promises. Let's be successful in his eyes, knowing that all of our sins are forgiven in his name and that one day we, too, will be in God's throne room. We do this all in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, to reflect our thanks.